Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you this morning for the clear command that is in front of us. And Father, would we be found faithful? Would we be found obedient to participate in your work? Father, as we come this morning from, from different things, chaotic things, maybe even just getting out of the house this morning, we need you to, to meet us as we take a deep breath and just remind ourselves by your Spirit of your love for us and your desire to be with us and to know us even as we know you. So help us to understand your word this morning. We, we need your help by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll just picture this with me. You're sitting in a Corinthian villa in the first century. Someone wealthy has invited you. And you've gathered with other Christians in the town to, to read this, this newly arrived letter that's come from the Apostle Paul. And, and the letter is long, and so it's getting dark now. It was light when you first started, but it's getting dark now. And so perhaps candles have been lit. And what you've heard so far is that Paul, in his desire to care for this, this fledgling, yet at times chaotic church, he has said many hard things. H hard things, right? He's had to correct many false beliefs, even some shocking behavior. And as we come to chapter 15, chapter 15 of this letter, we see that Paul's solution to the chaos in Corinth, indeed the chaos in our world, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said in verses 3 to 4 of this very chapter, this good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, is the truth that changes everything. If we can understand and believe and trust in this, it will change everything, He's saying. And so the first century listeners are sitting up straight now. Again, those candles are lit. They believe that Jesus is alive. They believe that he's coming back to be eternally with them and make them alive with him. And they believe that their future is not some ethereal kind of mystical experience, but a real embodied thing, a physical thing. But suddenly they're confronted with a thought. So what? So what? Again, night has come, and since it's not safe to travel in the evening, they must leave soon. In the morning, they will wake up, 
If they are a slave, it will be early, and the work that will greet them will not be noble or dignifying. In fact, it will be quite inhumane. The wealthy will have their own problems seeking to navigate their newfound faith amidst a political world that is deeply religious, deeply idolatrous, deeply countered their new faith in Christ. And so, Jesus has been raised from the dead. So what? What happens tomorrow? What should I do? How should I live? These ancient questions sound very modern, don't they? In less than an hour's time, I won't preach that long. In less than an hour's time, the doors of this building will fling open. You will go to lunch and to friends and to eventually your places of work. You will go to sad places and hard places and confusing places, frustrating places, toilsome places. And in all these places, if you're a Christian, you'll be wondering, what should the life of a person who believes in the resurrection look like here? And if you're exploring Christianity, you're exploring following Jesus, maybe the question is more like, what could the life of a person who believes in the resurrection of Jesus look like? Now, without giving us an exhaustive answer this morning, Paul doesn't say everything in the one verse that Hugo read. Paul, I think, sketches for us the broad outlines of what it means to live a a therefore life. A therefore life. That is, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and all these implications that he's fleshed out so far, if that's real, if that's true, if that actually happened, your life ought to reflect, ought to picture, ought to image at least these three things. He says this. He exhorts us this morning, look on the screen, saying, first, be steadfast in the gospel. Second, be abounding in the Lord's work. Third, be confident in the resurrection. That's how we're going to move through our text. So if you have your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, and follow with me. Also, if you need a Bible, grab one at the back. You can keep it if you don't have one at all. It's our gift to you, okay? So Bible's open either on your phone, your iPad, in physical copy. Look at this verse. First, Paul says, be steadfast in the gospel. Notice the language which begins verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable. Paul, invoking the language of family, right? Brothers, sisters. He he pastorally puts his arm around us and says, when it comes to the gospel I preached, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, he says, don't waver. Don't move. Don't sway or buckle or collapse under cultural pressures or false teachings or even very real life-threatening persecutions. Don't move, he says. Don't move. Be steadfast. Be immovable. See, there's this really interesting dynamic happening in our text around movement. Did you catch that? See, in a bit, we're going to see Paul talk about abounding work, right? Overflowing work, right? Work that 
involves movement by definition. He's going to talk about moving and going and doing and being a particular way. But, and we must see this, there is great danger in going and doing, in abounding, that's not deeply rooted. That's not secure. Two weeks ago, I was, I was up north in a very cold place. And uh, my brother-in-law, he said, we should go climb a frozen waterfall. And I said, of course, no. No, I'm a human being. I understand what it means to live and to, to be safe in this world. And I'm not going to do that. That's a terrible idea. But, but as I was reflecting on that potential experience, which I said no to, how foolish would it be for us to begin climbing that waterfall, you know, kicking in with our, with our whatever those shoes are that are called, but you kick into ice climbing. I don't know. I didn't go. How foolish would it be to begin climbing this waterfall without an anchor at the top, without something secure, right, to, to keep us if we were to fall? And the same logic Paul's employing here for the Christian life. See, there is an eternal danger, a real danger, in departing from the gospel. I think we see this really clearly in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. See, this church in Colossae, it's a different letter we find in the New Testament, was going off course theologically. Interesting to note that their heresy was not theological liberalism per se, but more legalism. They were being legalists about it, trying to add to the work that Christ had, had accomplished. And so Paul writes them these words in verse 21 and 23 of chapter 1. He says this. He says, let me just remind you of something first. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, what has Jesus done? What's the gospel? Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But Paul keeps on writing. He doesn't just stop. He doesn't just say, like, and that's just it. Now just kind of do whatever. Just chill. No. What does he say? He says, if indeed, and he invokes the same language he will in our passage this morning, if indeed you continue in the faith, again, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, not adding to it, not taking away from it, not moving beyond it or away, not shifting, he says. He says, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, out of which I, Paul, became a minister. Listen, assumed in all this language, in 1 Corinthians and in Colossians 1, is that there are, and we need to hear this, forces pushing and pulling us off of the gospel. Do we understand that? That there are forces in this world that exist to push and pull us off of the foundation of the gospel. Right? There are inner forces. What Paul calls the flesh. Right? I just don't like it. Or I want it. Right? These inordinate desires. These misplaced desires. There are cultural forces. What Paul calls the world. Right? These, these bigger sort of movements away from or against the gospel. And there are spiritual forces. Lest we be materialists here. That Paul calls the devil. Talks about demonic powers, even in this very letter that we've been in. There are forces that exist 
to take you, Christian, and move you off of the gospel. And I say all this because we often think, don't we, by the way we live, maybe not by what we say, but by the way we live, that we live in this neutral world. That if we stay in neutral, that somehow we'll glide forward or we'll at least stay where we are. But, but the words of Paul remind us that in fact this is not good. It's unhelpful. Instead, we live in the midst of cosmic struggle. Do we recognize this? Are we oblivious to this? The, the quickest way to lose the war is to forget that we are in one. Paul says, be steadfast, immovable. I was thinking about this this week. And I think often we think about the gospel as being something of little consequence. So we think, and this is kind of a weird image, but of, of like sumo wrestlers. And if sumo wrestlers move outside the ring, what do they do? Well, they're fine. They're safe. They just go back in and try again, right? But, but Paul here is using like life and death language. And so what we should think rather is somebody standing on the edge of a cliff and, and to fall away from the gospel, to leave the gospel, to depart the gospel is not to just, you know, bruise your knee or skin your knee, but rather it's to enter into death itself. That's the, the, the binary language the apostle uses. Now, now, standing steadfast and immovable in the gospel is not only safe, what we have to see this morning is that it's the only way, the only way to be, to be fruitful, to, to do meaningful work. See, fruitfulness in our lives, and I think we want to do something fruitful with our lives, yes? Fruitfulness in our lives requires first faithfulness to the gospel. So Jesus said in John 15, very famously, he gave us this picture saying, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now listen, for apart from me, that is, apart from believing in me, trusting in me, having a living relationship with me, Jesus says, as the resurrected king, you can do not some things, not little things. Jesus says what? You can do nothing. Nothing. So here's what he's saying. There is no fruitfulness. There is no eternal significance in our work if it's apart from me. And I can feel, maybe not this room, but certainly the wider Christian room, maybe bristle at this idea. Maybe be a bit uncomfortable with this idea. Let me explain. It is true that God, in what theologians call His common grace, does do many good and right and helpful things through people who otherwise are ignorant or indifferent or even reject the gospel. Let's acknowledge this. It would be foolish to say otherwise. We, we all know of, of Buddhists and atheists and agnostics who for their own reasons are doing work that, that dignifies and protects and even liberates. But listen, it is sub-Christian it is below the vision we've been given by Christ himself 
to think only in terms of what's good for the next five years or the next ten years or even the next hundred years. Jesus says in John 6, 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And then later in that very chapter, he'll go on to explain, yeah, God gave you manna in the desert, but I've come to give you bread that will make you satisfied forever. He's talking about himself. He says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, the Christian asks this question, ready? What will make a difference forever? When's the last time you asked that question? What will make a difference forever? That's the paradigm, that's the story we're being invited into. And true fruitfulness in that story is always a result of faithfulness. Faithfulness, steadfastness to the gospel of Christ. There is no eternal result apart from Jesus' gospel. So why do I belabor this? I say all this because I think what I'm seeing, and maybe you are too, with Christians in the city of Vancouver, is something like this. We see a problem. Whether the problem is uh, addiction, or housing, or domestic violence, or racism, or the list is long, right? There are problems in this city. And we want to step in. In fact, we rightly observe our faith compels us to step into the mess, right? To go into these spaces with the hope of the gospel. But as, as we do this, as we enter those spaces to offer assistance, we soon find that while our help is wanted, our message is not. In fact, in some of these spaces, we're being increasingly told that the gospel of Jesus is the problem. Is the problem. And so, we want to do good, and our city values doing good, and so we come to this point of inner turmoil and conflict. And here's how it works. We're not ultimately standing steadfast and immovable on the gospel of Jesus, and so we falter and shake, and we abandon those elements of the gospel that we deem or societies deemed to be oppressive or unwelcome. And it happens all the time. So in view of this, in view of this being a very real issue with Christians in this city, I'm not talking about somewhere else, I'm talking about this city in this neighborhood. How do we actually do this? How do we remain steadfast and immovable in the face of cultural and societal pressures? Let me give you three, three ideas this morning. Again, not exhaustive, but three ideas. Talk about it in your community group, okay? First idea. Learn to connect all your acts of justice and kindness and mercy and love with the gospel that you've received. Learn to see how the gospel of Jesus leads you to these things. Learn to see how these things, rightly understood, are a direct outflow of what you've received in Christ. Here's what I mean. Let me get very practical. When you invite uh, your recently immigrated neighbor into your home for a feast, it's not primarily because uh, it's a Canadian thing to do to be polite, to invite someone in. 
Nor is it primarily because it's a good way for them to learn English or to be integrated into this country. All those things are true and good and they're fine. But it is first because God has welcomed us while we were strangers, before we knew the language of the gospel. And we have to see that. Here's what I mean. When you labor to craft and support and rally for legislation that protects the most vulnerable in society, it's not just because everybody else is about this. It's not just because it's the movement du jour, the popular thing to do of the day. No. Make the connection, Christian, that it's the right thing to do because that woman, that child, that person with a disability is made in the image of God. And Jesus longs especially for the outcast and the marginalized to find belonging through trusting in him. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Learn to connect all that you do, specifically in the realms of justice and mercy and care, to the gospel you've received. That's the work we have to do as Christians. Let's keep on going. Actually, I'm going to stop. When we fail to make these connections... The danger is that we can slowly begin to think that that true justice and kindness and mercy and love can somehow be shown apart from God and apart from the gospel, apart from the work of Jesus. Let, Let me give you another idea. Give yourself to active involvement in a local church. And here's what I mean. Sit under preaching and teaching and leadership that proclaims the gospel, all the gospel. Invite other believers to, in love, and this is hard, point out where you are shifting and moving away from the gospel. Learn to ask for help. Learn to voice your confusion. Learn to voice your struggles. And in humility, accept correction. How do we move away from the gospel? Partially the answer is because of isolation. And no one knows us. And no one's invited into our lives. And so it doesn't have to be this church. But you should give yourself to to the life of a local church somewhere in order that you might stand on the gospel selfishly. Third thing, study the Bible. Study the Bible. It should go without saying that we can only be steadfast and immovable in a message that we know. That we know. Study the Bible. Look at the central themes of Scripture. Join a community group. If you're a woman, Tuesday mornings and Wednesday evenings, we have a great women's Bible study going through the whole narrative of Scripture. Join it. If a friend brought you here this morning who knows about Jesus, who loves him, ask for resources. Talk to me after the gathering. Say, I want to get discipled. How does this start? Study the Bible. Read God's Word. Christ said he'd be steadfast and immovable, not wavering or turning from the gospel that we've received. See, once this conviction is sure in us, and we've drawn lines in the sand, so to speak, then the exciting work can begin. Paul continues. This is point two. He says, be steadfast in the gospel and be abounding in the Lord's work. Be abounding in the Lord's work. Keep on reading this one verse with me. Therefore, in view of the resurrection hope, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
I'll say this out of the gate so it's just really clear for us. Our faith is not an intellectual exercise. It's not a thought experiment. It's not intended to exist only for stimulating discussion, right? For, for fodder for your community groups. The gospel is intended to change us, to, to transform us. And not just in like small peripheral, like I, I just don't swear anymore kind of ways. No, Paul says it changes our life's work, our life's labor. Look at this with me. See, first Paul says it changes what our work is. Notice in verse 58, those who have taken a stand on Jesus and his gospel now labor in the work of the Lord. In the work of the Lord. So we can picture it like this. Again, imagine with me. You're not in first century Corinth anymore. You're now on a SkyTrain platform. 21st century Vancouver. And as the SkyTrain pulls into the stop, you step onto the SkyTrain Sky train, and, and there you make your home. You do not step off of it. You do not try to dangle your legs out the door if that was possible. Right? You are steadfast in holding on to that little handle that keeps you secure when that thing comes to like a sudden stop, right? You're not sitting in a seat because there are women and children there and you're not a monster, right? You've, you've given them your seat. But you're steadfast in holding on, right? But the train's moving, right? The SkyTrain takes off. It's driven by this motor and this power that's unmatched in any person. And it proceeds down the rails at a speed I could never match on my own should I try to run beside it. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but this is in part what it's like to participate in the work of the Lord. See, when Jesus rose from the dead by the Spirit of God, God set in motion a train. He set in motion a train, His kingdom. And it's a train that will not stop until it touches every corner of creation. There's a movement afoot. It's a train that will not stop until every enemy is defeated. And the day comes when Christ, Paul says, hands over the kingdom to his Father. This is kind of what it's like to participate in the work of the Lord, to merely step into what he's doing at a rate and a pace with an efficacy that we could never match. And if that sounds exciting to you, but also kind of vague, I think our text actually gives us more specifics. Notice, Paul talked about abounding work in the Lord. Abounding work. Did you see that? The language of abounding has already been used in this letter. We miss it in our English translations, but in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, Paul uses the same word in this sentence. He says this. He says, So with yourselves... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, remember when we talked about the Spirit? Strive to excel, literally abound. Abound. Strive to abound in building up the church. So, so what is the work of the Lord in our day and age? In this time after Christ's resurrection and before Christ's return, it is wrapped up with and connected to and inseparable from the building up of the church, God's people. This is what I mean. We, we get on board with what God is doing today when we, using the grace gifts that he has provided, encourage and extend hospitality and, and give to the weary and the struggling and the faltering among us. 
or we add through evangelism to the number of God's people, or we deepen through teaching the understanding of God's people. Here's what this means, that there are no sort of sideline people in God's plan. And so I just want to ask, like you're here this morning and you've gathered and that's good, but God has work for you. He has work for your life. And maybe up until this point, you've been happy being a passive consumer. And in one sense, we receive the gospel. That's true. But it is, as Bonhoeffer would say, a cheap grace that does not respond with their whole life as worship. Get off the sidelines. The Lord has work for you. Ask him. Ask someone else. Seek him. Do all this in the church. Now, the work of the Lord is more than evangelism. It's more than teaching. It's, it's more than discipleship. Paul will say again in Colossians that God is reconciling all things to himself. I don't want to create here a, a sacred and secular divide. No. But at the heart of what God is doing is he's gathering to himself a people who live to bring him glory as they abound in their labor. He's chosen to do that through you, through you, through me. So it doesn't matter this morning if you're a, a plumber or a pastor, a landscaper or a lawyer. Jesus commissions all of us with these words in Matthew 28 to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is not saying, look at that with me, Jesus is not saying that you must leave your current job and become a missionary or a pastor. No, no, what he is saying is that as you go, as you go, as you go to your school, to, to your residence, to your workplace, to your gym, he says, make disciples as you go. As you go. In the early church, it, it grew exponentially, not because they, they had a lot of paid professional evangelists on staff, no, the, the early church grew exponentially as people like gossiped the gospel to one another while they were making bread and working in the field and sitting in the courts. The church has never been a religion for professionals or a place for professionals. It's for all of us to speak in the everyday stuff of our life, the good news of Jesus as you go. Excitingly, the gospel invites us all into the eternal work of the Lord. But Paul also says something very important here. He says it changes how we work. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Again, this word abounding not only connects us to chapter 14, but it also, in and of itself, has this idea with it of excess and eagerness. One Bible teacher says this, he says, with such a staggering salvation in front of them and with the glorious prospect of the resurrection body, the response of Christians to God's gracious work in Christ should be one that pours over in almost excessive enthusiasm and dedication. Now, now please understand what he's saying here. For some of you, for some of you, the mere mention of work we're talking about work this morning. Ooh. Work in addition to your nine to five, in addition to your busy home, in addition to all the problems you're, you're, you're putting out. 
The mere mention of work to some of you this morning is exhausting. And you kind of cringe. You think, oh no. Perhaps even just being here, like physically in this room, was a feat in and of itself. Uh, I was off last week, and so I was with my wife on Sunday morning. Do you know how hard it is to get four children out the door to like a Sunday gathering? It's so hard. And I, that was good for me to be reminded of. It's very, very hard. So some of you, like you're here, bless you. You did it. You did it. Listen, if that's you this morning, it's important that you see this word abounding not referring to like a quantity of work, as in like do more, do more, do more, no, but rather a quality of work, a way of working. And to show you what I think Paul's getting at, let me take you to one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 29, Jesus says this. Maybe you've heard it. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, Jesus says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Notice what Jesus is not saying in our passage. He's not saying, if you come to me, I'll give you a vacation, a carefree, put-up-your-feet kind of life. He's also not saying work is bad. Just rest more. And then after you're done resting, rest again. He's not saying that. No, he's saying there's a new way to work. There's a new way to work. Jesus says, come to me. Paul says, our work is for the Lord. Both Paul and Jesus are inviting us to a new master. A new Lord a new king over our work. And so imagine for a minute not not working ultimately for the approval of of your superior. And, And imagine for a minute working not ultimately for the approval and pleasure of those that you're working for. And imagine for a minute working from, from, not for, but from the approval and pleasure of God who already says yes and amen over your work, who already blesses you and gives you everything in his son Jesus. It means that when we go to work in Christ, we don't need to justify our existence on the basis of our performance. That when we fail to meet that sales quota, we don't have to have an existential crisis because Christ accepts us and loves us as we are. And it means you can have joy when your work seems meaningless and monotonous. Knowing that that hard work done right with integrity is good in and of itself. It means that at work you don't need to get bitter or cynical when you're criticized or passed over. Because you've already had a better word spoken over you. When we work from a place of abiding relationship in Jesus, listen, this is not everything about work, but it's something. We don't get a vacation. We we get something better. We get a whole new way of working, a whole new way of being, abounding in the work of the Lord, Paul says. Lastly, he encourages us, be confident in all of this in the resurrection. Verse 58 again, Therefore, 
My beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And here's our last bit. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our verse today is putting a bow around this chapter. Paul's concluding chapter 15. Remember, he began many, many weeks ago by saying this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If, he says, you hold fast to the word I preached to you, then he says, unless you believed in vain. And then he said in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, right, if the tomb is still sealed, if his body's still in it, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus is not raised, we are not raised, none of what he said will happen, and your faith and all our work, our labor, what we spend our lives doing is empty if Jesus is not raised. Let me just take a moment here. Maybe you came and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're exploring what it means to follow him. Welcome. We, we all do, I think, our work out of a story, right? Out of a story of this world. An overarching belief of what we think this world is about. The meta narrative that controls it. And so, for example, most people in our city are living in a story where career and work is this place of self-actualization, where career and work is a place where we find ultimate fulfillment. And you maybe have made peace with the fact that one day you will die, your work will be largely forgotten, and there is an eternity of nothingness before you. But just for this moment, just for this day, just for maybe an hour, you're looking for purpose and meaning. But humor me for a moment. And consider a different story. Consider the Christian one. In the Christian story, God created work and he created it good. We find in the very first pages of the Bible, not just sort of blissful, zen-like rest, but labor. Right? Man given the commission to till and to have dominion over God's creation. Work is good. It's this good, blessed thing. The entrance of sin, rebellion, Questioning God's will for the world soon changes that. Our work, again in the early pages of the Bible, we see is transformed to toil. And so today, while we catch glimpses of the goodness of work, right? We still do catch glimpses of this. Our work is colored through the lens of toil. Right? Moments of frustration and agony, of even dehumanization in our very processes. Enter Jesus. Jesus, whose work in living obediently, dying in our place, and rising again, gets the train of his kingdom going. And all who believe in Jesus are invited to jump on board, to hop on the work that Jesus is doing. And Jesus says, here's how the work ends. I come back. I come back. And we saw this last week, right? Paul showed us. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, like that, and not only will our bodies be changed in that moment when the perishable will inherit the imperishable, but all things will be made new. This is how the story ends. We, we sung that this morning, didn't we? What will that be like when Jesus comes? Then do we enter a blissful, zen-like rest where we just kind of float there? No. I think in our text this morning, Paul is, is alluding to something. He's alluding to a passage we find in Isaiah 65. 
In Isaiah 65, a prophet who spoke 700 years before the New Testament, we find Isaiah talking about what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you imagine that? And this is how Isaiah describes it. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. But here's just a bit of it. He says, in the new heavens and the new earth, here's what's going to happen. They, that's God's people, shall build, build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. The days of toil of fruitless labor are over. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And then listen. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Maybe this morning you're longing for that enjoyment in work. And I just want to say to you, while, while work itself can never be the ultimate thing in this life and in this world, it, it won't fulfill you, that longing for enjoyment in your work is pointing to something. It's pointing to the day when we will create and it will last. But when we will plant and someone else won't steal it. Paul continues, rather Isaiah continues. He says, in this world, in this new heaven and the new earth, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for a, a bleak future. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Here's what Isaiah and Paul are saying. Here's what the Bible says. Not only is our labor not empty today if it's in the Lord, but listen, it will not be empty into eternity. It will not be empty in eternity. We have before us the promise of meaningful, fruitful, life-giving, enjoyable labor forever. Which means one of the great advantages of living in the Christian story is not trying to cram self-fulfillment into this brief time that we've been given. We don't have to cram it all into now because we have before us meaningful, lasting labor the Christian can work free from burden, free from trying to define or find themselves in a world where work is marred by toil and at times fruitlessness. If Jesus is alive, if Jesus is alive, again I say, if Jesus is alive, this is what is available to you this morning. How will you respond? How then shall you live? Let's pray. So Lord, we want to be found obedient in each of these spheres. Father, we want to be steadfast in the gospel. We want to be about your work. And we want to look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. We want to be filled with confidence when we think of these things. So help us, Lord. Father, if we're holding on to our work this morning tightly like it belongs to us, help us by your Spirit to release it to you. If we've never asked you, Lord, what you want for our lives, help us this morning, maybe the first time to ask, Lord, what do you want for my life? Father, we know that you are a good Father who gives to his children good gifts, and so would you give us the gift of guiding and directing us through your church, through your word, and by your Holy Spirit, uh, in the labor of our hands. 
may it be found to be the kind that lasts into eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.